The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oil prices surge again with the U.S. seeing crude hitting fresh seven-year highs while Wall Street closes in the red as inflation worries rattle global equity markets. The IMF backs its managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, amid a data-rigging scandal, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning standards of integrity must be reinforced at the agency. Another Evergrande debt deadline comes and goes without word from the Chinese developer, whilst rival Modernland and Cynic scramble to delay their own dates, uh, due dates, and the city of Harbin announces plans to prop up the sector. And JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon brands Bitcoin worthless, but says it's his responsibility to provide clients access to the crypto which is up 30% this month. I hadn't seen or heard Jeff's last headline until he read it in that. And that just for me, is Jamie Dimon. He is uh, a master deal maker, a, fa- a very strong banker, but an ultimate pragmatist as well. And I was wondering where he stood on Bitcoin recently because he was originally against Bitcoin and, and against the bank getting involved. And, but now he's saying, look, we've got to do what we've got to do. If the clients want to play this thing, then they want to play a thing. But actually branding it worthless. I'm going to read those comments. I think that's absolutely fascinating. So I read the headlines across the board from CNBC and other networks. It seems to me that they're saying inflation fears are back. Well, hello. <laughs> Welcome to the party. Um, so it's inflation. You hear a lot about it on this side of the Atlantic. Former MPC member Andrew's sentence uh, hitting the, uh, the airwaves, um, talking about UK inflation getting out of hand, RPI, RPIX getting to six and seven handles uh, next year and later in the year. So real concern there as well. We'll speak to George Buckley of Nomura later on as well. He's got a strong view on this. That'll be at 9.30 Central European time. But in the US, it was apparently inflation fears that sent the Nasdaq down 93 points, the Dow down 72 points, and the S&P 500 down 0.7 of 1%. Do you know what? I haven't actually looked at the Treasury today. So you're going to see them before me. Is it exciting? Is it? Yeah. Oh, someone said, oh, OK, well, it's not me. It's 161. It's where we were. Don't get me on it. I was getting all excited again. So 161 is where the 10 year is. The five year 1.0759. As Jeff was pointing out, it ain't just the 10 year. We do need to look at the curve as well. So let's look a bit further out as well. Uh, 2.1597. I think looking at what's going on in the US mortgage market, absolutely key. The credit availability and the demand for financing at high levels. Very interesting. Now, you know I like a bit of data, ladies and gentlemen, and the piece of data I want to direct your attention to today is the one that I think is as important as that figure you all got worked up about on Friday. You all got worked up about the 194,000 jobs created in US on the non-farm payroll. I thought the um, payroll report was important, but I don't think it was for that figure. So, Have a look at the jolts later on today. You may get a jolt out of your comfort zone about where you think the jobs picture is as well, because the jolts is about hiring. It's about quits. 
It's about firing and it's about vacancies. And I think it's a really, really important piece of data. So it's the job openings and labor market turnover survey, if you want the, the non-acronym version there as well. So that's coming up a little bit later on in the US today. Would you like to look at the dollar crosses? I think you would. So let's do that now. 113.27 dollar yen. A couple of um, interesting ones here. What happened to the great European recovery? That's what I want to know in terms of the eyes of the Forex traders. Because look, there's a lot that's going okay and going well in Europe at the moment. We do have um, the recovery fund money being dispersed to nations that actually apparently want to abide by EU rules, unlike Poland as well. Um, but at the moment, uh, 115.6 is where the euro dollar is currently trading. Again, wasn't that long ago we were saying, well, surely a, a big surge above 120 is inevitable. Uh, another country that's uh, having its angst with the, the European Commission at the moment is sterling and uh, the pound and UK. And we're trading at 136. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, as we're saying, a lot of people concerned now about the first interest rate hike. Well, even if we get an interest rate hike, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what the interest rates are in the United Kingdom? Yeah, 0.1. What was your first mortgage, Jeff? I think mine was about eight. Um, <laughs> Not 0.8, eight. Yeah, it wasn't eight. I think you were in the game a little faster than me, Late, but it certainly yeah, wasn't where 90. we are now. Well, the yeah. best thing was ERM, of course, as well, and I was at Credit yes. A. And basically, I, I couldn't sell my original flat, so I right. bought another house and then rented that flat out. Yes. And then uh, the UK mortgage rate suddenly went up, or base, base rate went up to 12% plus. Yes. And I said to my boss, Bernard, who was French, uh, I'm broke. He said, do not worry, Stephen. It will not last long. They cannot do this. And he was right, of course. Right. And he was French. That was a French accent, yeah, by love, the way. Love the accent. That's he good. was an amazing man. And if yeah. Bernard de la Brûlerie is still watching, is still in the business... Hope you're well, sir. Right, uh, shall I move on? Feeling a bit, bit emotional about old Bernard now. Right, let's move on. Commodities, he was my boss there. Uh, right, uh, we are, well, this is, look at this, look at this. You want to get involved in rock and roll? All you uh, Robin Hood traders out there, all you want to like a ride, like a gamification. Have you played lumber? <laughs> it's, it's a bit rock and roll lumber is all I can say. I would not recommend, by the way, any sensible trader to touch lumber as well, because it's a very specialized market. It's a very tightly held contract as well. And my goodness me, it wings around a bit as well. So if you want to play and, and have gamification, have a look at lumber. If you want to invest and actually make some money, I wouldn't touch lumber with a barge pole at the moment. It is up over 50% in the last seven weeks. Aluminium is now 1% now, but again, has had a great run to the upside. Uh, and the same with palladium and copper, which are both trading mildly negative as we speak. Let's have a look at the Asian markets as well. Where are we on the major indices? Uh, down across the board. So the Nikkei, which put on a big rally, uh, as did the Hang Seng yesterday, both giving back around about half the gains I think we were at this time yesterday. Shanghai Composite and the ASX 200 uh, down 1% and 0.43% respectively. Oh, God. Feeling evocative about my old boss at uh, yeah. Credit A. But I'm fascinated by Jamie Dimon. I think he is a, a phenomenal banker, whether you like JP Morgan or not. Yes. He is very good at job. And I think he says some very, very interesting things. But I think he's the ultimate pragmatist as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot to say about supply chains. I mean, he's always got a lot to say about everything. But I was yeah. going to say, if you uh, like a bit of excitement and lumber is too boring, try <laughs> try the uh, the Chinese bond market at the moment. Oh, yeah? What a day yesterday. Corporate Incredible. or sovereign? Uh, the corporate property developers, <laughs> uh, high-yield market... Well, that's Incredible. How exciting that because is. Because Erdos Callahan, yeah. who you've interviewed many times in Davos as well, yes. she was like saying, Evergrande on its own isn't the, isn't the problem. If yeah. there's, and I think the end of her, well, if the rest <coughs> of the property market yeah. has the same issues, then there may be something in it. 
Yeah, well, Warren Buffett always talks about cockroaches and when in, in connection to financial scandals or companies in trouble. And he always says, uh, when you lift up the paving slab, there's always one, more than one cockroach. Well, we're seeing a, a lot of companies now that are talking about extending out the bond payments at the moment. Anyway, back to J, uh, JP Morgan's uh, CEO, Jamie Dimon, predicting that supply chain hiccups will ease and will not be an issue come next year. That contrasts with many analysts who are forecasting bottlenecks will last well into 2022. Diamond said consumer demand continues to recover, with spending levels about 20% higher than pre-pandemic levels. Let's have a look at WTI and Brent, where they're trading. They're trying to get uh, Brent down. They're not succeeding that very well at the moment as well. Wow, look at that. It's just blipped up to 83.82. WTI crew trading above 80 bucks still. There's a lot of things I miss about Vienna, Jeff, about uh, those OPEC meetings. A lot of things I don't miss about those OPEC meetings as well. But one I do is good old Neil Atkinson. Now, before he became famous as uh, as an IEA guru, uh, he was uh, an independent oil analyst. And guess what? He's back to being an independent oil analyst. Hello, Neil. Nice to see you, my friend. Oh, you're in Paris. How glamorous. Now, look, um, what's OPEC up to? They know they could put more barrels on the table if they wanted to as well. They kind of like the handle of 80, though, don't they? Good morning. Yeah, I think they do, uh, uh, Steve. There's, There's a sweet spot for the OPEC plus producers. Uh, a year ago, oil prices were you know, nailed to the floor. Uh, now we're in a situation where demand is coming back. They have been very carefully moderating their production. They have an agreement to put so much back into the market each month. They meet each month to review the situation. And uh, I would not be surprised if oil prices do continue to uh, creep upwards uh, as they have been doing recently that they may well decide to moderate the increases by putting more into the market. They have, you know, seven or eight million barrels a day, depends on your estimate, a spare capacity. That is an enormously powerful weapon to uh, influence the oil market if they choose to use it. Uh, But you know as well as I do, they've got to be a little bit careful on this one as well, because, I mean, again, you know way better than I do that historically, every time they push it too far, then they affect the global economy like no other commodity can affect it. And back in 2014 is the last time we were trading these kind of levels. So I've got my chart up. And then from those levels, we went precipitously down to significantly below $40 a barrel uh, by the start of 2016. They've got to be very careful on this calibration, Neil. Yeah, indeed. I remember talking about this with you in Vienna in 2014. Uh, And the consequences of the decision that they took in Vienna at the end of 2014, in other words, to fight for market share and essentially compete against the US shell producers, led the price down below $30 a barrel, in fact, at the beginning of 2016. And a very important point about that is that that had the consequence of starving the upstream oil and gas sector of investment in 2015, 2016. And since then, it's barely recovered. So we're in a situation where if you look a little bit further ahead, we may be storing up some trouble. But in the short term, they have a very, very difficult balancing act. They do not want to see prices go so high that it chokes off the economic recovery that we all want to see continuing. But on the other hand, they have their own balance sheets to protect. Uh, They've had a tough time in 2020, along with everybody else. So it's a very, very fine judgment. But if they think that it's necessary to cool the market, I think they will do so. 
Neil, good morning to you. It's Karen jumping in. I just wanted to ask you about some of the weakness still in the economy, because if you look at the difference between how oil and some of the industrial commodities are trading, it suggests from the industrial commodity side, at least, angle that the market thinks there will be some slowing down in some of the industrial production that we've witnessed. And already some economists are pointing to the likes of Japan, Germany and China saying you are seeing a recession in those uh, economies in terms of industrial production. Does OPEC need to be careful then about some of the weakness still around globally at this stage? Well, I think one of the factors that they are uh, taking into account is this potential weakness. Now, there are signs that uh, of slower activity on the industrial side in some of the countries that you mentioned, China in particular, because of the logistical difficulties that, it, that it's got. But although oil demand has been coming back very strongly in, 20, in the later part of uh, 2020 and throughout 2021, what we are seeing is there is a slowing in the pace of the demand recovery. So, and in fact, on the, on the current balances, based on the outlook for oil demand, which will go down in the first quarter of 2022 for normal seasonal reasons, unless we get really cold weather, and on the other hand, the planned increases in supply that we've got in the market, and we are, in fact, on, on paper, looking at surpluses in the oil market. So there is, yes, uh, you know, we're talking now about $85 Brent, WTI going above 80. We're seeing huge increases in prices for other commodities, logistical uh, uh, constraints. But if we look just a little bit further ahead into 2022, the early part thereof, some of the fears that uh, I think you outlined in your original question uh, could well come into play, and the heat may come out of this, uh, this current situation that we're in. But the problem we may have as far as uh, energy markets is concerned is if, for the sake of argument, we were to have a very, very cold uh, northern hemisphere winter season, that will continue the stresses on oil, gas and coal prices uh, into 2022, and then we could well be seeing further uh, increases in prices. But, you know, who knows about the weather? It's tough enough forecasting oil demand. And, uh, you know, the weather is, a, is another thing altogether. It is a wild card, isn't it, Neil? Uh, let's look a little bit further into the future then, because based on the trading activity that we've witnessed, it's been fascinating, perhaps almost a window into the future, because the market has aggressively moved towards ESG and funding some of those assets. And there was a view that maybe oil will be a stranded asset one day. But in the last few weeks, have we learned a valuable lesson about oil as a swing producer in those ESG energy markets of the future? Oh, absolutely. I think there's been, uh, I mean, understandably, there is an enormous amount of attention on the energy transition, uh, the, the place we need to reach uh, in 2030, 2040, 2050. That's entirely understandable. But uh, from my own perspective, as, uh, as someone focusing on oil markets, what I've been saying for some time, even when I was still at the IEA and now I'm back working independently, is that meanwhile, there's a real world going on today. And for the next decade, at least, and I think it could be slightly longer than that, we are still going to be very heavily reliant on oil products for transportation, uh, land-based uh, transport, obviously, shipping, aviation. We're going to be uh, trucking. We're going to be reliant on oil-based products for consumer goods, plastics. This is still an important uh, area of industry. And there's a, a little part of me sometimes when you, when you read about the statements from the major oil companies, you think to, you think to yourself, well, hang on, guys. 
you should be getting out there and saying, yes, we understand there is an energy transition underway, and it's important that we play our part in that, and we can play a part in that. But there is still a real world today which needs oil and needs oil products, and is going to continue to need them for many, many years to come. And we should make that case. And I don't think the oil and gas industry is necessarily helping itself uh, at the moment uh, in reminding people of the real world we do actually live in, which is not to downplay the importance of the energy transition in any way. Uh, just one quick final point here. I can't resist this, Steve, talking about uh, inflation earlier on. Uh, look, in the mid-1970s, I was doing my O-levels and A-levels in England. I can remember inflation rate getting to down near 30%. So, you know, I think we've got quite a long way to go yet. Um, Neil, can I ask you about um, the the way that you think about this then as someone who is trying to make money out of speculating in the oil markets at the moment? Because it's been a bizarre two years. We had, you remember what, 12 months ago, you couldn't give it away. You basically had to uh, be paid to take the oil away as long as you had the storage and now we're talking about a market that is in backwardation, and that backwardation seems to be increasing, which implies that we're going to have expensive oil with us for quite a bit longer. And yet, given where we've come from, how confident can any trader be that those conditions will continue for the next, uh, I don't know, 18 months? Well, they can't be confident, uh, of course, is, is the, quick, the quick answer to that, because the uncertainties uh, in the oil market and the gas market still remain uh, very, very great. Obviously, the, the initial worry we've got or concern we have for the next few months is the impact of weather. So on oil, uh, the estimates are that if we were to have a pretty tough winter in the northern hemisphere, uh, we could see oil demand go up by about a million barrels a day above normal levels. But we've no idea if that is going to happen. And of course, if that were to be the case, that would be oil which would be uh, 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 supplementing uh, shortages of gas in power generation. As we move into 2022, we cannot be wholly confident that uh, that COVID is over and it's beaten. I think most of us think that the worst is behind us and hopefully uh, normal economic activity will continue to resume. But we cannot be sure about that. That is still an enormous, uh, an enormous uh, uncertainty. And finally, back to our OPEC Plus friends, uh, who uh, I think have done an absolutely amazing job since April 2020 uh, in uh, bringing some kind of stability to the oil market. Uh, I think uh, there could well be strains as we move into 2022 amongst uh, the leading participants in the deal. And that is something else we should also be watching for. But in the next 18 months, uh, Jeff, as you're suggesting in your remarks, there is still an enormous amount of uncertainty out there. And it's going to be a very, very bumpy ride. Neil, we appreciate your expertise. Uh, Neil Atkinson, independent oil analyst, weighing in today as we talk about the oil price and the moves we've witnessed this week. 
Let's push on to what we're seeing out of uh, the World Bank as the debt of low-income countries has risen 12% to a record $860 billion in 2020, according to the World Bank, as the pandemic ravaged economies. President David Malpass called for urgent efforts to reduce the debt burden, including swifter restructuring and greater transparency. He said half of the world's poorest countries are in an external debt crisis or at high risk of it, making their economic recovery difficult. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the report into the World Bank's alleged data rigging has raised, quote, legitimate issues and concerns over actions of the bank's former CEO and current IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva. But Yellen added that a lack of direct evidence meant there would be no need for a leadership change. The IMF Executive Board reaffirmed its confidence in Gorgieva's leadership yesterday after an investigation by law firm Wilma Hale alleged that she pressured World Bank staff to alter the scores of flagship doing the flagship doing business report to favour China. Well, speaking of China, coming up on the show, Evergrande misses another deadline as debt jitters ripple through the Chinese property sector. And just a reminder, if you want more on inflation worries that we're seeing play out of the market, as well as those oil prices we're watching, you can check out today's Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. China's auto industry body, the CPCA, says passenger car sales slipped more than 17% year-over-year in the month of September. The total sales came at 1.6 million vehicles for the month. The CPCA also added that Tesla sold more than 56,000 locally built cars, including just under 4,000 for export. And the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, has ordered an investigation into the ties between state banks and other financial institutions, just how close those links are to private firms. The probe began in September and is being led by the country's top anti-corruption agency, focusing on 25 financial institutions at the heart of the Chinese economy. That is according to the Wall Street Journal. And China has halted a raft of upcoming IPOs, citing outdated financial data. The Shanghai Bourse suspended reviews of 57 listing applications, including Syngenta's planned $10 billion debut, slated to be the world's largest this year. Jeff. The latest deadline for an Evergrande interest payment has passed without any acknowledgement from the troubled Chinese developer. Some bondholders had not received payments by the 6am CET cutoff point, according to Reuters sources. Uh, Sam joins us now with more. And, and Sam, it looked like a very difficult day in the Chinese property sector with uh, high-yield bond prices spiking everywhere and concerns not just about Evergrande, but a whole slew of other developers that now look as though they're going to have difficulty making these payments. 
Yeah, that's right. Good morning to you, Jeff. Certainly this is set to intensify those concerns about the contagion risk. As you say, now this uh, other deadline for another round of debt obligations at Evergrande coming and going. The deadline for that payment was 0400 at GMT. And I've been really fixated on the Evergrande alerts for around two days now. And as you say, still no word from the company other than Reuters sources now saying that some of those bondholders have not received those coupon payments. It was looking at three offshore coupon payments uh, with a combined total of $148 million. Uh, but really, this comes as no surprise because analysts had said that this payment was highly unlikely given the other debt obligations that it also missed. So this would make it the third round that it's missed in a matter of weeks now when that would make it into that 30-day grace period to get all of these deals done to avoid uh, a default. But certainly those bondholders are really... Uh, on the edge of their seats, waiting for some communication on this. And meanwhile, investors uh, are certainly worried about the systemic risk here because uh, we have seen, of course, Evergrande's shares uh, halted from trade over in Hong Kong. But signs of stress continuing to show in the broader bond market. We have seen those Chinese high-yield bond spreads widening significantly. But when it comes to those other smaller property developers, for instance, you've got Modern Land listed over uh, in Hong Kong, which is said to be asking investors now to push back a $250 million bond payment due on October the 25th by three months now to avoid a default. Its shares have shed around a third of their value over the past month. As you can see there, Cynic Holdings has reportedly suggested it's too cash-strapped to make a bond repayment this year as well and is likely default next week. And you've also had Kaiser Group, which is another one, uh, which actually was the first Chinese property developer to default in 2015, uh, and it saw its bonds uh, take a hit as well. So a clear sign now of the ripple effects that this is having in the wider market. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.